We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, September 2nd, 2021. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Glad to have you here. Privileged to have you here every single weekday. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, online at GuyBensonShow.com. Many ways to listen live. If you can't, we have a podcast that's always free. On demand, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Programming note, I'll be on with Kennedy tonight, our dear friend Kennedy, as a guest, not filling in for her. And it's been a while, but I'm excited to announce I will be part of Party Swap, which is where the conservative, yours truly, does a whole segment as a leftist. And the lefty guest, who will be Jessica Tarloff, will do her impression of a right winger. And we'll go at it. And we'll see who does the better fake argument. So that's tonight on Kennedy, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on Fox Business Network. Here on the radio side, here's the lineup. Congressman Anthony Gonzalez, Republican of Ohio, he will be here in the next hour, as will Jessica Tarloff. I know she's got the five tonight and then party swap, but she's starting her on-air duties here with us. Kat Timpf will be here to start the happy hour, 5 p.m. or so, Eastern Time. We'll do a little Sincerely Kat. We've got some questions for her. It's always fun when our friend Kat Timpf swings by. Fox News Alert. Let's bring you stats, coronavirus cases and deaths in the United States. The case count is 39.5 million all in, with the real number much higher. It looks like perhaps for real, the Delta wave, at least in some of these southern states, has crested and is really coming down now. On cases, hospitalizations, deaths are a lagging indicator. And, of course, we're bracing for an additional wave seasonally elsewhere in the country in the coming months. Please get vaccinated if you haven't already. And I've actually started to hear from some of my friends who were holdouts. They're starting to finally go and get it. Anecdotal, but the numbers also back that up. There's been an uptick, and I think Delta has really played a part in that. The Dow is up 92 points right now to 35,404, closing bell in just over 51 minutes. We begin on Afghanistan, as we have almost every single day for weeks. And I want to start by reading you an excerpt from a story and then juxtapose it with something that administration officials are now whispering to reporters. This story is from the Washington Examiner. Headline, Gunfire and Beatings. Congressional offices get harrowing reports 
from Afghanistan evacuees and trapped citizens. Congressional staff members and family frantically working to keep U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents and other family escape and help them escape from Afghanistan after the Taliban took over have received harrowing reports of the chaotic situation in the final days before and after the military's withdrawal. From being on the phone with individuals, dodging gunfire, to messages describing Taliban beating U.S. citizens, lives are on the line as an ever-changing security landscape hamstrings staff members working long hours to assist those stranded. One message screenshot shared with the examiner, which is not being directly quoted to protect the identities and safety of those who are still in Kabul, describes a group of U.S. citizens who arranged for transportation to the airport. The Taliban only let a few through, beating the rest and firing gunshots over their heads, sending them running. Now that the U.S. military has fully withdrawn from the Kabul airport, some Americans and their families are left in limbo. In fact, it's hundreds of Americans. The administration says, oh, it's about 100. We have no idea if that number is accurate. We have no reason to believe them, quite frankly. They also have been pressed about how many Americans who are not citizens but are legal permanent residents of the United States, green card holders, The New York Times, as I've said now multiple times, reporting this week that there are thousands of them believed to be stranded in Afghanistan. They are Americans. What about them? How many numbers of them remain in Afghanistan? What does that ballpark look like, according to the administration? Because the Times says it could be thousands. The State Department was pressed on that earlier, and they could not come up with a number. And they are deliberately excluding that number from the number of Americans that they talk about, that we know of, that they are willing to acknowledge, remain stuck and abandoned in Afghanistan. And then, of course, there are the many tens of thousands of people who helped us, interpreters, SIV recipients and applicants and their families that we know were just straight up abandoned. We promised we were going to get them out. Biden himself, the president, said, along with Americans, the same promise applied to these Afghans. And by the tens of thousands, they've been abandoned. And we've told you some of those stories. And I think those people are in the gravest danger of getting murdered. And they know it. And NBC News and a few other outlets, Wall Street Journal reporting yesterday that it appears the overwhelming, vast, vast majority of those people who would have qualified did not get out. A relative handful did. And the president, I'll remind you, calls all of this an extraordinary success, even with Americans still stranded. And congressional offices are being bombarded with people seeking assistance for their family members or their loved ones or friends or Friends of friends, people who served with Afghan interpreters, they're appealing to Congress for help because it's not really working properly through the so-called proper channels of the State Department and the Biden administration, which, of course, has overseen an absolutely chaotic and disastrous withdrawal. Even if you agree with the overall decision to withdraw, the execution has been outrageously derelict. 
at the State Department, officials were also asked, there was sort of this back and forth, how many Americans are still there? How many legal permanent American residents are still there? They couldn't give a number. And then Victoria Newland, who's a State Department official, was asked, okay, what about the people who are still there? You say that there's still an effort to get them out. What does that actually look like? Here's some vague platitudes from Ms. Newland in Cut 8. Listen. Well, the messages are being tailored depending upon who they are and where they are. Um, I'm not going to get into the specifics of that. But the first thing we have to do is ensure that we can get air routes and land routes secured, and that's what we're working on. But what we mostly need to understand is is to continue to evaluate who is where, uh, who they have with them, so that we can, uh, on a case-by-case basis, do what we can to, to tailor uh, evacuation routes for them. I'm sure that inspires so much confidence in the people who have been stranded, left behind. After no less than the President of the United States promised them repeatedly that would not happen. Now it has. Now, last week, in fact, I think it was just a few days ago. It might have been this week. This is kind of blurred together. But there was a report that we read to you on the air from ABC News. The so-called Pineapple Express. Remember this amazing story? of American veterans going sort of off the books, off the grid, through non-official channels, working together to try to save as many of these Afghan allies as possible. Right, The number that we know, roughly 8,500 of them who were able to get out of the country, I'd love to know what percentage of those were the results of ad hoc, panicked rescue efforts as opposed to the government going and doing it. Because it looks like there were hundreds, and I saw an update, could be thousands of them who actually were lucky enough to be saved, who were not betrayed. That was the work of people day and night in the region, here at home, trying to move heaven and earth despite the Biden administration, despite the government, despite effectively a stand-down order for our troops, doing everything that they could as private, honorable Americans to go and save fellow Americans and our allies, people that we owed. Right? So those efforts have been termed a few different things. One of them, a digital Dunkirk, a reference back to World War II and a huge uh, you know, civilian evacuation. Prominent film made about that recently. Well, Julia Yaffe, who's a journalist, she has heard now from some administration officials who want people to know that they were actually feeling annoyed and hamstrung by these private efforts. Quote, deeply annoyed, in fact. Washington and others banded together, she writes, to try to save innocent people from a grisly fate half a world away. But from the vantage point of the people running the evacuations, i.e. the government, it looked very different. Government officials told me that these requests ate up precious time and resources. Officials in Washington tried to be responsive to friends and NGOs and their genuine pleas for help, but it often contributed to confusion and disorganization on the ground in Kabul as groups of Afghans with influential D.C. sponsors would suddenly get bumped to the front of the line, bumping other people back toward an uncertain future. 
So clearly there were people in the Biden administration who are now going around and talking to some journalists saying, well, look, these were well-meaning people trying to help, but they were getting in our way and it was annoying and we would get these calls and so on and so forth. And I'd imagine that the political spin here, this is me reading between the lines, the spin here is, well, part of the reason that it was so chaotic and we didn't necessarily do everything that we wanted to get done is partially because of these nettlesome, meddlesome people who were trying to help in that suite of them, but it wasn't really helpful because they were trying to do all this stuff on their own. And they were engaged, you know, sort of outside the lines, and then they tried to coordinate with us, and it sort of messed things up. And I really don't think that this spin plays the way that they think it's going to play. The reason that these efforts were necessary is the gross incompetence of the Biden administration. If they had listened to months worth of begging and pleading from allies, from veterans, from advocacy groups, from even a lot of our people on the ground, if they had planned an orderly, even quasi-orderly evacuation over the span of months, if they had contingency planned and prioritized and not shut down our our major air base in the middle of the night, before the airlift, if they had done virtually anything differently or better. The panic and the chaos at the 11th hour at the very end in this this bottleneck and all of these people coming in and swooping in and trying to do something with the Biden administration just flailing and failing, that wouldn't have been necessary. The digital Dunkirk and Operation Pineapple Express and all that, that were... That, that represents people stepping into the gap, stepping into the breach, stepping into this void created by the total lack of leadership and foresight and competence of Joe Biden and his team, who then have the audacity to turn around and gripe to some reporters about how that ended up adding to the chaos and creating more headaches for them. Maybe they should have thought about this months in advance. Maybe the president should have been promising all of these people that America would get them out when apparently they should have known full well that was not going to happen. And the bad guys here, the villains here, oh, the the well-intentioned villains, as they would say, are the people who dared interfere and actually try with their own tireless efforts to keep a promise made by this country and by this president that the president was unwilling to keep himself. Again, I think this spin is kind of framed as an excuse for how frazzled things got, saying, well, look, I mean, it wasn't really their fault, but that wasn't helpful. And you you saw what you saw. No. Those frantic, frenetic last-second efforts were necessitated by terrible choices and decisions made by this president and his team. And yet the blame game and blame-storming apparently will never stop 
until they feel like they can just turn the page and everyone will change the subject. Which is why Jen Psaki, I think, was very eager to talk about abortion today and Texas at the press briefing because, you know, let's throw some chum in the water and the media agrees with them on that stuff. So let's let's move. Let's move on. Well, it's not moving on for the thousands of people still trapped there. And by the way, I'll address the Texas situation later in the show. More to get to on Afghanistan because we're not averting our eyes. When we come back, it's the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. Energetic, informed, fast-paced. Guy Benson Show. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. You can't get them all out in five minutes. You can't get them all out yesterday. So what happens going forward if we continue with this effort to get them out and we start getting them out, as many out as possible, then I think that we should stop all, you know, running around like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe we left so many I know, people but here's behind. The one we thing don't know if we forgetting. left them behind yet. We I don't hear know yet. you. But, Don, it's easy to be level-headed when nobody's chasing you with a machete. Back on the Guy Benson show, a little uh, banter there, repartee between Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo on CNN. Don Lemon doing the uh, apology thing. For the Biden administration. No, we can't get all these people out in five minutes. Oh, we left people there. So what? Calm down, everyone. I mean, setting aside the promise that we made. And it didn't have to be five minutes. How about five months? It could have been five months, but they didn't do it. They were deaf to those recommendations. So that squeeze timeline was of their own stupid making. And then the voice of reason is Cuomo saying, yeah, but Don, it's easy to kind of say that from your vantage point when you don't have someone with a machete chasing you. Fair point. I would just say it may not be a machete. It's probably an American assault weapon, an actual assault weapon from our military, thousands of which, hundreds of thousands of which are now in Taliban hands because of this plan for every contingency withdrawal that Biden calls a success. An extraordinary success. Taliban, by the way, had a victory parade with our equipment, our Humvees, our vehicles. And there are reports that they are now cozying up to China, making investments in the country, and shipping some of our technology and weapons. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. And a Equipment to Iran. That was Radio Free Europe that reported that. Who could have seen this coming? They planned for every contingency, right?
From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of the story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back from Greater Washington, D.C., it's The Guy Benson Show. I want to draw your attention to a fact check that I have written at townhall.com today on the tip sheet. And here's the headline, fact check, no, Florida's recent data reporting change doesn't misrepresent COVID deaths. So the Miami Herald, which has been pretty consistently hostile to Governor DeSantis down in Florida, they had this sort of bombshell-seeming report earlier in the week. In all caps, special report. As cases ballooned in August, the Florida Health Department changed the way it reported death data to the CDC, giving the appearance of a pandemic in decline, an analysis of Florida data by the Miami Herald found. So immediately this started getting shared on progressive social media chains and channels with people saying, aha, he is manipulating the data after all. Remember, they've been accusing Ron DeSantis of manipulating COVID data in Florida based on nothing for a year and a half. What Andrew Cuomo was actually doing in New York, they were baselessly accusing DeSantis of doing. And a lot of that disinformation originated with a discredited, compulsive liar named Rebecca Jones. Now, she's been just completely debunked. She has no credibility whatsoever. Even people who aren't DeSantis fans have finally come around in recent months to admitting, yeah, okay, okay, maybe we shouldn't have run with that stuff. So what's this? People are saying, aha, this is the Cuomo thing, but now in Florida. So I decided to look into it. Here's what the change in the death reporting actually entails. Until three weeks ago, data collected by the Department of Health and published on the CDC website counted deaths by the date they were recorded, which is a common method for producing daily stats used by most states. But on August 10th, Florida switched its methodology and along with a handful of other states began to tally new deaths by the date the person died. So this was a shift midstream on how the reporting of the deaths was happening in Florida, the way the state was reporting it to the CDC. Now, I think it's fair to say that antenna might go up when a government decides in the middle of a crisis, and we're still in a pandemic, Florida in the Delta wave has been really hit very hard, even though their vaccination rate is pretty good, especially among old people. It's above average. They've still been slammed by Delta. A lot of their hospitals have filled up. That's why Governor DeSantis is out there promoting the antibody treatments for people who might get infected. It's something that is very effective in the early days of an infection to keep you out of the hospital. And he was attacked baselessly for that as well. And we talked about that. We debunked that here. 
that it seems like almost every week there's some new outrage that you have to look into and push back against. This one, at least there's something to it. Because one of the problems in New York was when they changed the way, without announcing it, without telling anyone, they started changing the way that they were going to count nursing home deaths because they had a real political problem. Governor Cuomo had forced a bunch of sick, elderly people back into nursing homes in those facilities. The deaths increased dramatically. This could be a problem for the governor, so they started sort of cooking the books, saying, oh, well, we're not going to count these nursing home deaths as really nursing home deaths. We'll, we'll move those elsewhere into different categories. And, of course, we found out later that New York undercounted overall COVID deaths, too. They didn't just underestimate nursing home deaths, undercount nursing home deaths by 50% or so. They undercounted overall COVID deaths by 12,000. And the new governor rectified that when she took office after Cuomo resigned. That is not even remotely close to what is happening here with Florida. I think it's fair to say, okay, why are they changing? There was a precipitating event behind this, which was right at that date, August 9th, August 10th, the CDC published incorrect information about Florida case counts, which made it seem like they had this massive new count, the biggest day ever on COVID cases. And it turned out that that was a backlog of several days worth of cases that were reported as just one day based on the reporting date. So the CDC got that wrong. Florida pushed back very hard. And Florida said, we're sort of sick of this. Where deaths finally from COVID trickle in and they get reported later. And then once those go on the books, there's like this daily spike in numbers saying, you know, look at all these new COVID deaths. Let's do what several other states are doing. Let's attribute COVID deaths to the day that the person actually died. And I want to emphasize here, because I I really did research into this to make sure that there wasn't something legitimate, because I think, look, yes, in fairness, if they're changing midstream the way they're counting or reporting COVID deaths, I want to understand why. I'm curious why that's happening. It's fair, I think, to say, okay, is there a political angle to this? Unlike New York where there was corruption and cooking of the books and hiding of deaths and undercounting, that is not what's even being alleged in Florida. Every single COVID death is being counted. The question is, how are they being recorded? How are they being tallied? Is it by the date that the state receives the report of the death? Or is it, once they get that report, based on the day the person died? Florida decided, moving forward, because of this spat sort of that they had with the CDC based on this sort of reporting lag issue they decided that moving forward the best way is to report it by the date of death and the Miami Herald has this big story like oh they are manipulating this notice that there's no allegation of undercounting or not counting certain deaths they're all getting counted and by the way all the data the new way and the old way it's all at the CDC Right? Nothing is being hidden. What they're doing is shifting to what nine states and a few other jurisdictions do, which is the recording by the 
date of death. Nine other states do it, including some blue states, Rhode Island among them. Puerto Rico does it this way. New York City, not New York State, New York City does it this way. California, Michigan, Tennessee, they use a hybrid method of the two. So the report date versus the death date. And then the rest of the states do the report date, which is what Florida used to do. Now this may seem kind of in the weeds, and it is. It certainly is. And the Miami Herald, I think, tried to dress it up as saying this is this totally unexpected, out-of-nowhere change that is manipulating things to make it seem like the pandemic isn't as bad because of the way that they're shifting their policy. And right near the top of the piece, they quote an epidemiologist who's very concerned, saying this is extremely problematic, the way Florida has made this change. However, buried much deeper down into the story... They quote another epidemiologist, Jason Salemi, who's been tracking the state's COVID data now throughout the pandemic. And he said reporting by date of death, the new process, is better for long-term studies of the disease. Quote, deaths by date of death, that curve is the most accurate you can get. You know exactly when people died. You know how to construct the curve and exactly when we were experiencing surges in terms of deaths. Now, he says there would be a lag, and it sort of complicates some of the shorter-term data. But over the course of time, in the fullness of time, and it's not like we're talking about huge delays here, you get a more accurate picture of when deaths were happening because you're actually reporting them by the date that people died. And yes, there's been a surge in deaths in, in Florida during Delta. That has happened. There's no getting around that. No one is trying to hide that. It's right there in the data. Another, I think, distortion, and it's an implication by the Miami Herald, is that, oh, this was all done out of nowhere and no one knew. Then they just had to drop this bomb, this big investigation that they did this week. Except I reached out to the DeSantis office, and they cited multiple stories, coverage of this change from weeks ago. The change was disclosed. There were questions about it. There were statements in early August about it. Like within days of the decision being made, the CDC had a statement. The uh, Florida Health Department had a statement. They were taking questions from reporters. It was written up. And guess what? It was written up in, drumroll, the Miami Herald. It's a story August 19th about it. There's a story August 12th about it, which includes on-the-record quotes from federal and state officials explaining the change. So, just to reiterate, this is not the most outrageous, fabricated, fake scandal that the media has tried to gin up against Ron DeSantis, because they do it endlessly. And we have, I think, covered it about as thoroughly as anyone else in the country when the media tries to do this. This one has some seed of legitimacy in that I think it's fair for some people to question and be concerned about a reporting change midway through a pandemic. Why are you doing that? Why are you doing it now? 
and it's traced back to this this dust-up, this kerfuffle over case reporting between the CDC and Florida. Florida, apparently, I'm told, had some experts saying you really should switch over to this other method that other states are using. And I think that was the straw that broke the camel's back, and Florida said, fine. They announced it. They talked about it in the press. No deaths are being suppressed. None of them are being undercounted. They're just changing the way they're doing it. To what some experts and doctors say, and researchers say, ultimately is the superior method in terms of accurate, useful data. And it was not done in the dead of night, secretly, where they weren't acknowledging it and hoping no one would notice. It was out in the open. And there are blue states and blue jurisdictions that count their COVID deaths exactly the same way. So I just wanted to bring that to your attention because at some point, right, Governor DeSantis is running for re-election down there. They're going to throw a ton of money at him next year. The reason that they come after him so relentlessly and so dishonestly a lot of the time is because they are worried about his prospects on a national stage. Is he the type of person who can win in a swing state, bring together various elements of the Republican Party that haven't been necessarily getting along? Can he sort of you know, unify? Can he bring some independence along? Could he threaten the power of the left? And that includes journalists. That includes Democrats. They're almost all you know, on the same page, on the same team most of the time. So leading into 22 and potentially beyond... I guarantee you, at some point, you are going to hear about this. Some friend of yours or liberal relative or Democratic candidate or media organization, they are going to say, oh, yeah, well, DeSantis cooked the books. DeSantis manipulated the data. DeSantis was trying to hide COVID deaths. Because whenever the numbers in Florida are sort of above average or average, they can't, they can't compute that. They are all fanatically of the belief that Florida is just hell on earth. It's, you know, dead last, bottom of the barrel, complete hellscape. And then when the data doesn't match that, a lot of them just have to revert to this thing like, oh, the data must be fake. The only reason it looks not so bad is because DeSantis is lying about it. And they've tried that over and over again. They have failed and hit a brick wall over and over again because it's not true. This is the latest attempt. And I'm just telling you, this is going to show up in your Twitter thread or your Facebook feed or an email or an attack ad. It's coming. So I wanted to equip you with actual information about what happened here. No, this is not Cuomo all over again. Not even close. Different planets. I've got the receipts. I've got the information. It's all at townhall.com. You know, maybe they'll realize this thing is too in the weeds. Maybe it's not going to draw political blood and they'll move on. I think they're going to try. That's why the Miami Herald had, you know, all big font. Whoa, big special investigation. Look what we discovered. Oh, you mean the thing that they told you about that you reported about weeks ago? That thing? The switch to the exact same method? which does not undercount or distort the same method that 
nine other states use, New York City, Bill de Blasio's New York City uses this, it's some right-wing lie. Is that what you're going with? I think they tried. We want to intervene with a fact check here so you know the truth. We will step aside, take a quick break. Joe Manchin from West Virginia dropping an unwelcome bomb on his party and some of their aspirations to spend a lot of money. He just did that today. We'll get to that. Plus, remember the border crisis? Still a thing. It has not gone away. A new detail on that front when we come back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Joe Manchin writing in the Wall Street Journal today saying, no, I'm not going to support $3.5 trillion in additional spending. It's not going to happen. He said, look at this inflation, all the debt, future crises that are going to happen. Congress needs to take a strategic pause on all of this spending, which is not what Democratic leadership wants to hear. They don't want to pause. They don't want this thing languishing. We had Mitch McConnell on yesterday. He said, I don't know what these Democrats are going to do, these handful of moderates. Well, seems like Manchin's planting the flag a little more firmly here. Not going to happen on $3.5 trillion. What's his number? I think we'll find out in relatively short order. Meanwhile, there's this, cut 13. It's the Biden administration has lost track of thousands of unaccompanied children who came to the border earlier in the year. This is a, 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 something we found, actually this is reporting uh, this morning uh, on the rights of a FOIA request of documents my colleague Steph Kipe got from the Biden administration detailing uh, about the check-in calls that the government is supposed to do after these children arrive. Uh, they're processed by the government and they're, and they're given to guardians, uh, sponsors, or family members. Within uh, months after those trans- transitions, the government is supposed to call and check in on them. But what we found is about the 15,000 uh, unaccompanied minors that cross the border that are subject to these kind of check-ins, 5,000 of them can't be located. It speaks to the massive problem uh, that still continues on the border as far as dealing with these unaccompanied minors, processing them and figuring out where to place them and make sure they're taken care of. Yeah, so we're abandoning and stranding people and breaking promises in Afghanistan, and we're losing track of thousands of illegal immigrant children that are now in the country. God knows where they are. That's the border crisis. It has not gone away amid the other Biden crisis that has been getting so much attention. And we're going to keep our eye as much as we can on both of these issues and more. On The Guy Benson Show, more coming up. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. Middle hour here on the Guy Benson Show. We are underway. Glad to have you here. Our second out of three hours, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day, should you miss any of it. Still to come, Jesse Tarloff this hour and Kat Timpf in the next hour. Fox News Alert. 
The Dow closes up 131 points, closing at 35,443, and record closes again for the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. With that, let's get to our first guest today. Congressman Anthony Gonzalez is a Republican representing Ohio 16, also a former standout at Ohio State, went on to play in the NFL. And Congressman, I had Kirk Herbstreet on the show earlier this week. You're now my second Buckeye. I'm starting to get concerned here. I'm, I'm concerned for you. There's plenty of room on our bandwagon, Guy. I know you're a no. Northwestern Wildcat, but, <laughs> but we will take you if you want to come on. We will accept. Uh, I, I'm going to have to take a hard pass on that one. I appreciate the invitation. <laughs> I know you guys are opening your season at Minnesota tonight. That's a broadcast on Fox, Big Fox, 8 p.m. Eastern. Should be a pretty easy win up in Minneapolis for the Buckeyes. One never knows. Uh, the Cats hosting Sparty tomorrow evening under the lights on ESPN. Cats are favored by a field goal in that game. Ohio State favored by two touchdowns tonight. Feeling good about that one? Yeah, I mean, I, I always feel good about the Buckeyes. I will say, you know, first game of the year, night game, on the road, Thursday night, and we're breaking in a bunch of new starters. I think they have 20 starters back, so... I, I suspect it'll be a much tougher game than you know maybe that 14-point spread suggests. But um, you know, for those who are going to track these things, maybe I'm dead wrong and we win by 40. Who knows? Well, look, that game's on Fox Broadcast Network, and I think what America collectively is planning to do is to tune into Fox Business Network at 8 p.m. to watch me on Kennedy's show, and then there will be a mass migration at 9 p.m. over to the football game, or at least that's how I'd like to delude myself. Congressman Gonzalez, let's talk about more serious matters, specifically Afghanistan. Uh, you have been watching what has occurred over the last few weeks, this uh, disastrous, calamitous withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan. I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of, broadly speaking, U.S. policy over there, whether you think it was the right decision to get out, ultimately, of Afghanistan, roughly around this time, and if that analysis is then separate from how you view the way that this withdrawal has been handled by the Biden administration. Yeah, so a lot of interesting questions in there to unpack. So I think the, the way that I would answer it is ask myself the question, what was the goal of having a U.S. presence in that region? And to me, the goal is to prevent Afghanistan from becoming a launching point for terror and to pre prevent terrorist attacks on the homeland. So if by virtue of that being the goal, the strategy is, hey, let's shrink the force or let's move it elsewhere or so that we can still have a presence in the region to protect us, I think that's that's fair. If it's just get out because I made a political promise to get out, I think that's silly and short-sighted. Uh, now, then the second question is, okay, let's say you say, all right, I don't care, get everybody home, and you know we'll deal with Afghanistan from you know from from America. Even if that's your position, I think looking at what happened in Afghanistan with that withdrawal shows that the Biden administration both has no ability to understand who the Taliban is and how they operate, uh, and also has been on their back foot the entire time as one press conference after another, they basically contradict themselves or have to correct themselves within 20, 30 minutes. Um, so it's it's been a real disaster, and there's real-world consequences. We have people stuck in Afghanistan. I have people stuck in Afghanistan. He said 100 to 200. 
I will just tell you, I've talked to a handful of members and my number's already at 100 and I haven't talked to that many people. So I think they're way short on that number, um, which will you know, be another example of, of them just being wrong on what's happening over there. Or lying, right? I mean, here's the thing. I, I don't like or to lying. just casually yeah. throw that around. But given everything that they've said and given the massive lie that the president told to Americans and to our Afghan allies that we would get them out, I mean, that is simply untrue. It did not happen. And I am not at this stage, given all of their misinformation and deflection and spin, I'm not willing to take any of their statistics really at face value at all. And if they say, well, it's about 100 and you say you're hearing it, it's got to be significantly more than that based on just people that you specifically know about to me that would suggest that they are once again not being straight with the american people about a very important issue which is how many americans did we abandon in a country now run by a terrorist organization after the president said over and over again we were going to abandon no one yeah. Well, you make the exact right point. And, you know, I would say what we have now is a de facto hostage situation where we left the Taliban. I mean, think about this. He, he gives a press conference yesterday or the day before where he basically is celebrating the fact that we got 90 percent out. When did 90 percent of our people away from terrorists become the mark? Like to me, it was it was 100 percent. We have to get 100 percent of our people away from the Taliban so that they cannot be used uh, against us, they cannot be used as ransom uh, to to help foster their their terrorist state. And again, to your point, we know that's what they're going to do. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. I don't think this has been reported. So, Secretary Blinken goes on TV and says, "If an American wants to come home, they will be able to come home, and we believe we can work with the Taliban." Okay, so I call the task force, the congressional task force, immediately after he gets gets done with that press conference. I say, okay, I have five people I need home. You just said that they can come home and that the Taliban is going to work with us. So what do I tell the people that are stuck in Afghanistan? And the response was, tell them to hide, tell them to shelter in place, and tell them we cannot help them because the military has gone and... Uh, the only thing that they're going to be able to do as of now is wait for the airport to reopen so they can buy a ticket. Does that sound like a partnership to you? That sounds like a hostage situation. That sounds like wow. do everything you can when... not to upset the Taliban or, you know, God help you. And that was the advice I got from the State Department five minutes after Secretary Blinken just got off, off stage telling people that anybody who wanted to leave could leave. And when was that? That was whenever he gave the press conference. I think it was two nights ago or the night before that my days are running, running together. So just but, a few days ago, you yeah. reached out to the State Department after Blinken had made those assurances and their response to you for specific individuals that you know are stuck there was to shelter in place and hide for the time being. And they can't really do much to help right now. Exactly. And then the other thing they say is, well, you know, wow. we got everybody, mostly everybody who, who wants to come out, uh, suggesting that maybe my folks didn't want to come out. Okay, well, let me, let me explain that situation because I talked to them. They said, look, we went where the State Department told us to go. The Taliban was shooting bullets over our heads. It was a mom and her kids. The Taliban said to the mother, go home. We don't want to see you again. If we see you again, we're going to shoot you in front of your kids. That's our partner. That's who we're negotiating with now. That's who's going to help us get American citizens out of Afghanistan. I mean, it's just it's fantasy thinking. I have no idea 
who thinks it's a good idea to negotiate with the, the Taliban, but it's patently insane. They've shown time and again that whether it's Taliban 2.0 or the original Taliban, they are a terrorist state that will do everything they can to acquire power and crush their own people. Inclusive of that will be holding Americans hostage in Afghanistan. Wow. So I'm, I'm just processing that story, and I wonder what comes next. We played a soundbite from earlier today, Victoria Newland at the State Department, saying that they're going on a case-by-case basis, and they are tailoring specific escape plans for you know individuals as they see fit. And uh, they're working on that right now for exfiltration strategies. It was sort of a bit of a word salad. Do you have any confidence that that, that is actually happening? and benefiting your people anytime soon? Uh, no, because, I've again, I've spoken to my people, um, and, and I know that they haven't heard anything that they have any faith in. Uh, but, it, but, again, it goes back to the original problem, which is every single time either President Biden or somebody in his administration gets in front of the country and talks about what's happening in Afghanistan, they are either lying or they have to retract it within a few minutes. Right. And so in that world, you know, just think of just think three things off the top of your head. One, he said, we will not be you will not see us flying helicopters and pulling people out of the embassy. We saw it. He gets on TV and says there are no reports of Americans having trouble reaching the airport. Ten minutes later, his secretary of state tells members of Congress on a call that we have reports of people being beaten in front of the airport by the Taliban. That's two things. Number three, worst of all, we will not leave any American who wants to go behind. We will not remove the U.S. military until all Americans who want to leave are extracted. He lied again. Yeah, then we did. And he made the same promise, by the way, for our allies, our Afghan interpreters, etc. Tens of thousands of them have been left behind, thousands of American permanent residents. He also said that he's heard of no credibility issues of America's image in the world from our allies, which was also an insane, disprovable lie at the time. And on and on we go. Congressman Anthony Gonzalez, Republican of Ohio, joining us on The Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Some news out of the Supreme Court breaking late last night. The justices sharply divided five to four, declining to block the implementation of a new law in Texas on abortion that took effect. It is the so-called heartbeat law, which would outlaw almost all abortions after roughly six weeks when the baby's heartbeat can first be detected. In the majority in this case, were Justices Thomas, Alito, and then Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. The three liberal justices dissented, and Chief Justice Roberts joined the liberals in this case, although the way that this is shaking out, I think, is pretty complicated. Some people are framing this as Roe versus Wade being overturned or shadow overturned. I think that's overstating things for now. There is a case in the pipeline that will more directly address Roe and abortion precedent in general. That is due in the upcoming term. I'm not a lawyer, 
but having read some of the lawyers that I trust, it seems like this is a very complex legal issue involving jurisdiction and who could enjoin the law, who would have the authority to do that, and there seemed to be some dispute over that. So some of the dissenters were going to the constitutionality question. My understanding is Chief Justice Roberts was not. Either way, this was basically a punt from the Supreme Court saying they're not going to block the law from going into effect. It's now in effect. But the underlying issue of abortion jurisprudence is not affected and not ruled on. They said that they have left that alone. For now, because there's a case coming up in the next term, as I mentioned. So you're seeing, I think, a lot of reaction from people that are hyperventilating one way or another. And I tweeted about this earlier because my thoughts are, I think, relatively nuanced. I'm pro-life. That's one of the big reasons why I'm conservative. To me, it's a human rights issue. I recognize that it's also a women's rights issue, and it comes to this conflict of when does a life become a life worthy of legal protection, and that is the crux of the argument. Right? I don't think that most pro-choice people want to kill babies. I don't think that most pro-life people want to subjugate or control women. I know that's sort of the cartoon the version of the Gonzale- debate. It really comes down to when does life begin? When is a life worthy of being protected under our laws? And that is a very difficult ethical and legal question. And I am pro-life because I believe that unborn life is also human life. I believe that Roe versus Wade back in 1973 was wrongly decided. There are a lot of liberal scholars who would agree. They might like the outcome. They think it was a very poorly reasoned decision that invented a constitutional right. I would like to see Roe overturned or at least scaled back to restore more authority to the states to set policy. Because left-wing states have all sorts of insane abortion policies that they've implemented that I passionately disagree with, but it's their constitutional right. If that's what they want to do out there, for example, in Oregon, where it's third-term abortion, any reason, on demand, paid for by taxpayers, including for illegal immigrants, that's their law out there. It is radical. It is really sickening to me, but that's what their state has decided to do. Should there not be leeway for other states with different values, where the electorates think differently, to offer some restrictions in the other direction? That's what a change to Roe would allow. Now, as I said, there are complex jurisdictional issues here, and the core question has been pushed off to another day by the court. As a pro-lifer and speaking to fellow pro-lifers, I think the country, and polling bears this out, is with us on a number of the issues that we care about and some of the common sense limitations on abortion that are widely supported by large majorities of the American people, large majorities of American women. Unfortunately, some of the more radical stuff is not just what the abortion lobby believes, but largely what the Democratic Party now believes and fights for with almost a religious zeal. We should also recognize as pro-lifers that there are a lot of hearts and minds that are not convinced, especially on certain policies, and should we overreach, we collectively as a pro-life movement, Like, let's say the Supreme Court at some point does scale back Roe versus Wade, and there is more latitude for state legislatures to do things. I think that pro-lifers 
in elected positions need to think very carefully about not overreaching and not harming the cause broadly because I would like to see sustainable progress on this issue. And the Texas law, which would impose these bans starting midway through the first trimester with no exception, for example, for even rape, that almost feels designed in a laboratory to incur a backlash and alienate a lot of people who might agree with us on some of the other questions on this broader set of issues. And that, to me, I think is a concerning potential development. And I know some people say, well, then you're not really pro-life. And maybe I'm not a full-blown absolutist. I'm more of a pragmatic incrementalist. I think that there are certain things that we can do with the consent of the governed, despite what the media says and how they try to frame this issue. They are wildly out of touch with the American people. But I also recognize that to shift things dramatically overnight might make certain gains and progress unsustainable. And that's the way I view it. And I recognize that's not going to satisfy necessarily a lot of people on either side of this issue, but it's what I believe. It's what I believe. It's what I think. That's my analysis of it. And the bottom line out of Texas is this is a temporary punt, basically, with the real major decision likely upcoming next year. And where we go from there will depend on what the justices decide. The Guy Benson Show returns. Jesse Tarloff joins us next. Stay tuned. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Halfway through the show on this Thursday, I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. With me now is Jessica Tarloff. Fox News contributor, head of research at Bustle, also the chief romance correspondent here at The Guy Benson Show. And Jesse, it's good to have you back here. Thank you for having me. Last time you were here, we mentioned and talked at some length about the passing of your father that you had made public on Twitter, and you told us a bit of his story, and I did not know until that moment that he was, among many other things, an extremely successful winemaker out in Oregon, and you talked about some of the offerings of Pinot Noir and other things, and he had two different sort of labels, one that's quite high-end and one that's more geared toward younger people, and I ended up ordering a variety pack of six bottles of the wine. (laughs) We have had a few of them. We've consumed them, and I tweeted at you. I know that you saw it. Your sister sent me a very nice note, and she's married to a kid that I went to church with and youth group with back in the day who was a drummer for the Jonas Brothers like it's just all this crazy stuff happened in the span of about a day but we had some really nice Pinot some nice Chardonnay and we lifted a glass in your dad's memory and just thanks I know you also hooked me up with sort of like a special deal on the wine so I appreciate it it's called Alit A-L-I-T just sort of a free plug there but I, I wanted to sort of finish and complete the circle there on the wine story, because I know uh, it was meaningful to me, and and you're a friend of the show. 
Um, well, I appreciate it, and um, I'm most glad that you guys enjoyed the wine. Nothing would have made my dad happier than knowing that his product was bringing people together and, you know, creating a great mood for a nice night uh, during a global health pandemic that's destroying everyone's lives. So you've yeah. got to have some joy <laughs> built in there. Yes, and one of these days when we're both able to do it, we'll have to uh, have a glass together, and I'm looking forward to yeah. that. In the meantime, talking politics, we haven't actually, the two of us, talked politics since the whole Afghanistan meltdown really happened. And I saw earlier today Jen Psaki was being pressed about it. There's just sort of a news account still emerging as this issue really isn't going away, even though we are now out, the military is out of Afghanistan after 20 years. Right. As a Democrat, I just sort of wonder what your take is on it, because, you know, there are some Democrats who have been extremely harshly critical of the Biden administration. You have others who are sort of straddling the fence a little bit, saying we support the policy, but it could have been enacted and executed mm -hmm. better. And then there are people who are just doing sort of the reflexive. This was this was a an extraordinary success to quote President Biden. Where are you? Uh, I'm somewhere in the middle, which is usually of the leftist political spectrum, which which is where I hang. Yes, on uh, brand. Most of the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I, if anything, I just, on my tombstone, I wanted to say she was politically consistent. <laughs> so I actually wrote about uh, my reaction to what's going on in Afghanistan last week, um, which marries up the fact that this was something that multiple presidents have wanted to do, right, and that the deal was actually set in motion by President Trump and Mike Pompeo did a lot of the uh, negotiating of that when he was Secretary of State, but that this ended up like a royal debacle uh, that nobody predicted, which is a little bit concerning to me, having listened to Secretary Austin talk about it, for instance. Um, and the fact that the intelligence community, although they had warned President Biden, it sounds like that it was moving too fast, that saying August 31st, we had to be out, you know, to make sure that September 11th, we could say we're no longer in Afghanistan, uh, was not going to be the right way. So I fall in the middle there and, you know, remain hugely sad about the um, 13 service members that oh. we lost. Um, I don't. I don't like using the word needlessly, um, but you can't help but think since we had avoided a death in so long, it's like 2014, I think. Um, well, certainly nothing of this level since 2011, I think it was, um, that something could have been done. And then just, you know, the harrowing stories of the special uh, visa applicants who worked as translators for us, who, you know, went to war with us and we didn't make good on the promise to yeah. bring them here. Like that yes. kind of stuff is is garbage. And and we're better than that. And we should be. So we should be. Well, I think that we are. I mean, it, it, it's at these moments where you really think about what the promise of America is. And it's very much built on the foundation of strong allyship, right, for people who support the same democratic ideals that we do, the people who spill their blood alongside us, and that we offer a place where you can realize the American dream no matter where you came from, right? We're a nation of immigrants. And uh, that's been really tough for me personally to stomach in all of this, putting aside the fact that I net net agree with the action. And I'm glad that Biden made good on the promise because kicking the can down the road 
sucks. Well, well, he, he made he made good on the promise. He made good on the promise to get out. He didn't make good on the promise to get all of the Americans out and all of our allies out who helped us. And that, I think, I, I don't want to read too deeply into it politically, but just as a matter of national pride and national honor, to cut tens of thousands of them loose after making this very sort of sacred promise to them and saying, well, never mind, we're gone, good luck. Not only, I think, is that just horrible for those people, it also worries me there's going to come a time, we don't know when, where the United States of America, God forbid, is going to have to get back into armed conflict against a determined enemy. And we're going to need people to trust us and help us again in the future. And I just worry what message this sends, because I feel like this betrayal could resonate for a long time. That's one of my biggest concerns coming out of this. That's interesting. I mean, I think that's something that was definitely top of mind for the Brits, for instance, um, for Tony Blair, who was one of the architects of all of this. Um, And even in some of the more loose commentary that Boris Johnson, who was famous for his loose commentary, was making, where he basically gave a WTF, right? And was like, uh, no, 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 no. Like, we're not pulling out at this pace. Um, I'm not sure that it does have this net effect down the line of people not trusting us, but I do think that we are going to be so hesitant to get back into armed conflict again. And even if you saw, um, which I know that you did, but for listeners, you know, our response to ISIS-K, who were the terrorists, that killed our service members at the Kabul airport, you know, we droned them back, right? Like no one showed up in the middle of the night. It wasn't like a Rob O'Neill mission, right, for taking out uh, Osama. Right. And, that, and to be fair, that and, was also our approach pre-9-11, and then 9-11 happened. The, the fact is things can change. Look, I hope that our credibility as a nation collectively is not impacted by this in the long term or even the medium term, I fear Mm -hmm. that it is. And that's one of the components that has bothered me, among many others. Something that I want to shift to, Jesse, as we still have some time for a bit more politics, this is more on the home front, electoral politics, it looks like the polling has started to shift back in the favor of Gavin Newsom out in California. I head to California tomorrow, as it happens, in that recall election. It's coming up just in a matter of days. It's this month. It's right around the corner. The 14th, Uh, yeah. Correct. So you've got Newsom up, you know, for a potential recall. Things got extremely tight, basically tied. Now he's back ahead by, you know, mid to high single digits in some of the polling. It's hard to poll this kind of election. Everyone seems to agree that a lot of the passion and the enthusiasm is on the pro-recall side, but it's also a very deep blue state. I just wonder, you know, what you think is going to happen there. And if he hangs on, and I'm not saying that he will, but if he does hang on and uh, if he avoids the recall, is that something that will reassure national Democrats that maybe sort of this uh, growing seemingly growing tide heading into 2022 might be overblown or is it sort of cold comfort to hang on in a state like California? I think it's more cold comfort um, when you look at the trend lines out of the 2020 election and granted Trump won't be on the ballot. So obviously things are going to be different. I know he'll be campaigning for various candidates on the congressional and Senate level. um, But 
it's a different landscape when you can't see the name Trump, whether that makes you, you know, whether hearts pop out of your eyes or you start vomiting, right? Like it's a, it's a reaction that you're having um, in the ballot box. <laughs> um, what's gone on with Gavin Newsom has been really interesting. Um, it's a testament to just how important turnout is that it doesn't make a difference. Um, how much conviction you have while you're sitting on your couch Right, watching TV or going about your life, you got to show up and you got to vote. And the swing is happening because more people are realizing now that this is serious. And there was a big, I think it was in Politico, but a very interesting piece about Biden Democrats and that they are not energized at the same level um, as Democrats under, um, you know, another president who is more animated, who gets people more excited, right? There are a ton of people who voted for Biden just because they didn't want Donald Trump. And that that was having a ripple effect down ballot, that when you don't have people who are really amped up, then you don't got people showing up for like an off-year recall election. And so there's been tons of get-out-the-vote money that has poured into California. Corporations like Disney just donated a bunch of money, for instance, to Newsom's recall uh, effort. And I, I believe that he will hang on. The state is too blue for that. And now, especially with stuff like going on um, in Texas with the new abortion bill, it's going to be animating for Democrats, right? Which actually, I mean, there are tons of politics to this, but one of the things that has really stuck out for me about what's gone on with Texas is like, if you ever wanted to inflame liberals and get them to the polls, ban abortion after six weeks, right? And I shouldn't even say just liberals. There are a lot of moderates and frankly, a lot of women who know that by six weeks, a lot of them wouldn't even know that they're pregnant. And now they're being told whether the baby is a product of rape or incest, that they're going to have to carry um, the pregnancy to full term. So those are the kinds of things that get people really amped up. And I think you're seeing the effects um, of that in the in the Newsom polling. But Larry Elder, who is the leader on the Republican side uh, to win it, I think has done a good job. And I'm surprised, frankly, that the numbers for him are as high as they are. Yeah, I mean, I because it's California, which is such a liberal place, right. I would be surprised well, if they decide to throw... Parts of it are the, scary red. Yeah, but overall, I mean, it's it's such a liberal yeah, place. Yeah. I, I'd be surprised if they decide to throw out the Democratic governor, whose approval rating isn't great, but it's not like he's in Gray Davis territory. Right. And that was back when, you know, when he was recalled, California was less left wing at the time, right? So you had a less popular governor and a less liberal state, and they recalled him there. I think both of those things are, both of those factors now are a little bit different, which may cut in Newsom's favor. But if they turn this thing out, and if the fired up side decides to show up in full force and others don't, then, you know, anything could happen, and we are days away out there in California. Last question, Jesse, what's on the docket for you for the long weekend? Oh, uh, not a lot. It's our last weekend. We rented a house um, in Long Island to get some family time, so our last weekend with the house. So hopefully the weather will be Oh, are you, will are be you like no, sort of— No hurricanes. Are you sort of on vacation right now? No, I am about to head to the building to do the five, and then we are party swapping tonight together um, on Kennedy. I was going to say, I knew that you were on the five tonight and that we had party swap on Kennedy, which I'm excited about. And so I was sort of confused. Is she at the beach right now? I know everyone can do TV from wherever in the middle of the pandemic. Are you saying you're going to go 
out for the long weekend to the beach house. Yes, I'll go tomorrow after I do the five. So the five is in studio. So I'm here for that. So I've been splitting my time um, between the two. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, that sounds fun. How about you guys? Yeah. Uh, We're going uh, back to Napa uh, to celebrate the anniversary. Yep. We're going to talk more about that. Yep. Back in California, Newsom. Maybe I'll. uh, Try to convince some people on the recall while I'm out there. You know, just try well, to, just you know. Just don't do any fraudulent voting. You know, it's a really no, problem. I'm strongly opposed to voter <laughs> fraud, so I, I will not be doing that. Uh, we'll be talking more about the Napa trip just a little bit coming up in the next hour, the happy hour. You've got to run because you've got the five coming up. Jesse Tarloff, yeah. our colleague here, Fox News contributor, head of research at Bustle. Always appreciate it, Jesse. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great time this weekend. You too. And we'll be right back after this. Energetic, informed, fast-paced. Guy Benson Show. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. So if you've been following politics for a while, you might remember Cash for Clunkers. Remember that? Back during the Obama era, uh, simpler times. Cash for Clunkers. Well, how about Cash for Criminals? It's time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. FoxNews.com has a story from San Francisco, of course. I mentioned last segment to Jesse, heading to the Bay Area myself tomorrow. Here's the headline. San Francisco will pay people not to shoot others. They're dubbing this cash for criminals. San Francisco rolling out a pilot program that will pay high-risk individuals not to shoot anyone as gun crimes tick up in the city. They quote one of the city human rights commissioners who is promoting this idea. These small investments can transform the lives of individuals, but they can also transform communities. The way that this works is 10 individuals who have been targeted and identified as high risk of being on either end of a shooting, they will be paid, those 10 people, $300 each month to not be involved in shooting crimes, gun crimes. So participants, I guess, will be paired with life coaches. They'll get 300 bucks if they avoid being involved in a shooting each month. And they can also get an additional $200 a month by doing things like going to school or showing up to work or being a mediator. And they're paying them in the form of gift cards. So San Francisco is going to pay criminals who are deemed to be high risk to be involved in shootings, pay them not to shoot people. Now, here's what's interesting about this program. Even if you might say, well, gosh, you know, gun crime is up. Why not try it? Why not get creative? Even if this seems just preposterous on its face, and it does. Later in the story, we have this. Critics of the program have pointed out similar initiatives elsewhere haven't been very successful. David Ferdoso, writing at the Washington Examiner, notes that this was also tried in Sacramento in Northern California. What were the results? The promoters of the program boast that only 44% of the participants were subsequently arrested on new charges. As long as you don't count 
the roughly one-third of participants who dropped out of the program or were arrested in its first six months. (laughs) I'm sorry, but at some point, this stuff gets so ridiculous that you have to laugh. Yes, let's pay criminals not to shoot people. I mean, that sounds like a good gig. Can I sign up? I'm a taxpayer. I show up for work every day. That could be $500 a month. I would love $500 a month to not shoot anyone and show up for work. Sounds like a good deal to me. And really, uh, the damning point is the one made by Fredoso. They did this in a nearby city. A third of the participants dropped out quickly or were arrested quickly. And then after that, the remaining ones, more than four in ten, were subsequently arrested as well. I mean, to quote President Biden, I guess you have to call that an extraordinary success based on his definition of things. The Bay Area, man. There's loony stuff out there. Cash for criminals. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show, the happy hour. Cat Timpf will be here next. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Final hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday, chugging toward the long weekend. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. The podcast is free, on demand, every day. No charge to you. Available at your fingertips 24-7. We recommend subscribing. Maybe leave us a little review. The podcast has been growing significantly, and we are grateful to all of you for that. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. And because it is Labor Day weekend and the long weekend coming up, may I recommend, if you're 21-plus, the finished long drink. They sponsor the happy hour. They are delicious. TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where they are sold near you. Expansion into Michigan. I think that's their latest state. One or two more upcoming. That's the rumor that I've heard. And you can see where it's sold near you at TheLongDrink.com. You can also order online. Always drink responsibly. Joining us now is Kat Timp, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld, Fox News Channel, 11 p.m. Eastern every weeknight. Also co-host of the Tyrus and Timp podcast she is in our new york studios and cat welcome back so good to be back uh so let's first talk about the success of gutfeld exclamation point were you taken aback a little bit just be honest when you saw the quotes from bill maher calling greg the new king of late night and he (laughs) wasn't really being that sarcastic he wasn't being sarcastic. Even when other people kind of tried to shut him down, he, he, he shut them down. There was, you know, there was no but there. There was no, yeah, well, except this. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's just, it is really crazy, uh, especially given the fact that our staff is so small in comparison to these other shows where we shouldn't even be, like, compared to them, let alone having beaten them. Yeah, because you guys have, what, beaten Colbert yeah. now a couple times? Yep. And he was the one that you were still gunning for, beating Kimmel regularly, beating The Tonight Show regularly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think part of what Bill Maher's point was, the left has become so ridiculous in so many ways 
that it's pretty low-hanging fruit to really go after them and ridicule them and mock them in a funny way because so many of these late-night guys are lefties and progressives and they're sort of on that team first. They let a lot of obvious humor just slip by because they're on the team. You guys don't, and there's obviously just a huge market for that. Right, and I think um, another thing he pointed out, which I agree with and I've been saying for a very long time, is it's not even just that these shows have a lot of, you know, it's only humor for lefties. It's only, a lot of it isn't even jokes. Right. Uh, people aren't laughing. They're applauding the lines, you know, that they agree with. Like Clapter. Yeah, it's, yeah, I think that's what he called it. But that, that, that's exactly what it is. I mean, you forget that, oh, this is supposed to be a comedy show. And it's, it's, it's really condescending. And it's, it's really very, you know, in a bubble. And all of those things are true also. But it's also like, there's no laughter there. It's kind of just, it's just like mean. <laughs> and just luxury. Yeah. It's condescending. Exactly. And the thing is, like, obviously I'm a political person. I have my views. I recognize other people don't. If I want to watch a comedy show late at night, I'm not saying you can never touch on politics. But I just think like the relentlessly preening, preachy political stuff gets exhausting. I don't watch really anymore. If something goes viral, there's a clip that people are saying is really right. good, I'll watch that. I was always a big Conan O'Brien fan. Yeah. And I would bet a lot of money that Conan is a very left-leaning person, that he and I would disagree on a bunch of issues. I don't care. And what I like so much about his show back on NBC and then TBS when I caught it, it was just funny and irreverent and wacky. It was very smart, but also stupid, which is something that he really embraced. Yeah. And you would get, you know, like... He would do interviews with famous people, and I put that in quotes, where it's like a, a monitor would come down, and it'd be like Arnold Schwarzenegger's face, or Bill Clinton's face at the time, and you'd have a guy on his staff who would do terrible impressions of them, and they would superimpose this guy's mouth over the face of this prominent person, and he would conduct these ridiculous interviews right. with them that were totally politically incorrect, and... That stuff made me laugh, not like, you know, closer look, in-depth analysis of the latest political fight from, you know, Seth Meyers, with all due respect <laughs> to Seth. You know, he's a Northwestern Wildcat, go Cats. But, I mean, it, you can only take so much, and you guys are at least pushing back on some of that, and that was part of Bill Maher's point. And I think a lot of people were like, oh, he's making fun of Gutfeld. Then they read a little further, like, oh, my gosh, he actually isn't. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it's... It's also interesting because obviously, you know, Fox, everybody knows Fox News, you know, right-leaning, this, that. And the show is, obviously, we make fun of the left, but it's it, there's more even ideological diversity in the show. You know, I'm not on the right or the left, and I'm on every night. Um, and Greg is not your typical, like, right-wing guy himself either. Uh, and we have, you know, different, you know, cast of characters on, and we, talk, we, we have conversations about stuff. And everyone doesn't always agree about stuff. And we do like to keep it light and funny and fun. It's just nobody wants a to watch a con like what kind of court jester like comes in to be like, I am smarter than all of you and you all suck. <laughs> and then everyone like that's not funny. You know, I do. Uh, and and the ratings are now doing the talking and mm -hmm. it's pretty remarkable to watch. Kat, I want to talk to you about a couple different stories here uh, that we thought might be perfect for this segment. I want to start with a story that the New York Post ran a few days ago. You and your husband got married earlier this year, and Adam yes. and I had the great privilege of attending a very fun evening. Mm -hmm. We have our two-year anniversary coming up that we're celebrating this coming weekend. So Ooh. we've both been married at least relatively recently. Yes. And so I wonder what you make of this. Some newlyweds 
were upset at friends and family members who had RSVPDS and then were no-shows for their wedding, so they sent them invoices for $240 per couple because I guess that's what it cost them, right? Because you, you have to plunk down the cash. Whether people show up or not, you give a headcount to caterers and all this other right. stuff. You have to pay. This couple said, okay, if you're just going to disrespect us and not show up, here's an invoice. Please pay us for your empty seats, essentially. Yay or nay? This is one of those stories where I think everybody involved is awful. Uh, I wouldn't want to be in this circle of people at all or even any branch of this trash tree. Yeah, you would have gotten the saved a day. You'd have gotten to save the date and put it right in the garbage. Yes. I mean, listen. I will not. I will save the date to not attend your wedding. There is no excuse these days for like the, for not saying, even if it's last minute, I can't make it. Like we had people who were, you know, supposed to be our wedding, but then there was like a family emergency and they couldn't come. They let us know that even though it was a family emergency because we have phones. And like we have texting, we have email. Like it's not like the olden times when I don't even know what they did. I don't even have to like send a pigeon and like, then like yeah, yeah. Like there's no excuse for even shooting a text. Hey, and like I'm sorry. I know I'm sorry. I can't make it. Okay, so so they suck. But also I don't know because this couple. I mean, so they're starting out their marriage. They're starting out their marriage. And like the number one thing that they're worried about as newlyweds is like being petty over 240 bucks (laughs) over these people. Like, aren't you supposed to have some newly wedded bliss going on? No, they're they're sitting on their honeymoon with with like an abacus. Yeah, exactly. With a spreadsheet. Can you believe what the Smiths did? Although maybe, you know, a relationship built on mutual like mutually agreed upon spite for others might actually work. Yeah, I guess it could. I mean, there's some of that in every relationship, for sure. Uh, I think hating the same things is almost as important as liking the same things, although I hate almost everything that Cam likes. Mm. But, I, yeah, I, 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 uh, I think that you should be like, wow, we, you, know, you should at least say, hey, wow, we got married, love you, before you're like, all right, download the program. We got to get the invoice out. Get the spreadsheets fired yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. There's some people who need to pay. Yeah, $240 to be exact. And so obviously they're not going to pay it because either way this friendship is over. Like this friendship is over either way. So it's up to these no-showers whether they want to pay $240 and have the friendship be over or have it be over for free. You know, I would like to see this adjudicated on – like a Judge Judy type format. Yeah. Right, where you have the defendant and you have the plaintiff and they come into the courtroom and the bailiff is snarking and Judge Judy's interrupting and yelling at them. I would like to know where she comes down on this because I tend to believe that you are right. I don't want any part of these people. I might lean, I think it's tacky to send the invoice because that is really petty and spiteful, but it is a bad, bad look. To RSVP, yes, to a wedding, which is a very big expense and a hugely important day in someone's life, and then not show up. And not tell them. Yeah, without, without like some forewarning and an apology or anything right. like that. No, I, think, I think we are in agreement on the not big fans of anyone involved in the no. story here. Mm-mm. Now, here's another one that I want to get to because I know producer Christine wants to go a little sincerely cat with you and get a piece of advice. Yes. There's a piece in Psychology Today, which is recirculating it came out last year but it's how to spot or recognize a fake apology Mm -hmm. or a non-genuine apology and here are some of the big warning signs and the red flags apparently within the story if the apology has a statement that contains a but 
Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but mm-hmm. it invalidates the apology. This is what the person is arguing. Yeah, I agree. Similarly, if there's the word if, I'm sorry, oh, if, yeah. suggesting that it may not have really happened, then there's vague wording saying like, you know, I'm sorry for what happened, which is not taking personal responsibility. There's passive voice. The mistake that you were affected by, yeah. for example, sort of squirming away from responsibility. And then wordy, complicated explanations and justifications that are sort of muddying the waters mid-apology. These are some of the bullet points that they give us in this piece. And then there's a question about, you know, what to do, what constitutes a good apology. Uh, This is a Ph.D., who's written this piece, so it has to be right and not questioned. Uh, but I, I, have a, I have another one, another sign of a bad apology. Please. Uh, somebody who just goes, just completely blows it up like, you're right, I'm sorry, I'm the worst, I should have never been born, yeah. I was the worst <laughs> thing that ever happened to you was me. It's like, okay, you were like 15 minutes late, like, you know, so it's like, so then they become the victim and you yes. need to console them. Yeah, self-flagellating. Yes. Like, no, they're there. They're, they're, no, yeah, yeah. don't be so hard yeah, on yourself. Yeah, exactly. So that's another, ugh, that's a bad one. You can't handle it. Okay, no. so in this vein, producer Christine has a question for you. And this is just a little mini Sincerely Cat at the end of the segment. Christine, what is your question? Well, Cat gives the best advice. So I was very <laughs> excited about this story. I was very excited to ask her. Okay, I have two things. Number one, I have gotten the apology of, I'm sorry if you were offended. Yeah. And I really just told the person, I don't accept that apology. It's not an apology. I don't think that's an apology. But I have another question, and this is a little, you know, more thought-provoking, but I have a theory. 99% of apologies are not real. Probably true. Just to make the other person feel better. You're not, you're adults. We're smart people. When we say things and we do things, you don't, I, I don't think you're technically really sorry yeah. until that person has a freak attack and then you have to apologize and you don't mean it. Right. I think that the, the like there's a pretty simple format for what is a real and true apology. And that is you say you're sorry. You say, you know, just factually what you did wrong. You say why it was wrong and what you should have done instead and how you're going to avoid that in the future. Like that, like that's, that's how it goes. Because if someone says, I'm sorry, and you say, for what? And you say that I hurt you. Well, what did you do that hurt me? And, and why was that wrong? All right. So it's not so vague. Yeah. But um, I do want to say one more thing, guy, this doesn't count for all the times that I've made mistakes in the show and apologize. Mm. That I really was truly sorry about. Mm. Justin, we had to put that on record. Yeah. That, that's super sincere. (laughs) I'm convinced. (laughs) and look i also recognize there are sometimes don't apologize in general don't apologize unless you believe that you should right however there are times where trying to clear the air or smooth things over does require some finesse where it's not necessarily an apology but you're at least acknowledging someone else's feelings and saying i did not intend to make you feel that way without really apologizing but just affirming on some level that they are hurt and then trying to move past it. Like, I think that there's a place for that, but not as a replacement for an actual apology for something for which you should apologize. Right. Yeah, those are different things. There's a place for each thing. But the bottom line is, is in any relationship, whether it's like a romantic relationship, marriage, friendship, anything, um, there just has to be that genuine understanding of 
you know, their feelings and your actions and the relationship between those two things. And uh, if your focus is like, how do I get out of this or how do I make myself look better? That's that's not going to work because that's completely one sided. Honey, I'm so sorry that this happened. I'm so sorry that you feel this way. Let's make up by sending another invoice to the Smiths. Yeah. $240 now with interest. I think that's the solution perhaps here. They're going to do that every three weeks. <laughs> Cat Tim, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld every night, including tonight, mm-hmm. at 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. Cat, have a good long weekend. Thank you. You too. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. I referenced this in the last segment with Kat Timp, but we've got an anniversary coming up, Adam and I. Two years. Not quite there yet, but we're just a couple days away. And we're pretty excited going back to where we got married in Napa Valley. We're going with our parents, and we'll do some wine and some food and maybe some hiking and that sort of thing. I am also extremely excited and nervous about the Northwestern football opener tomorrow night with the Wildcats hosting Michigan State. I don't know what to expect from this team. There's a lot of new faces in new positions after an incredibly successful year. Last year for the Cats, we had Kirk Herbstreet on the show earlier in the week, and he picked my Northwestern Wildcats, so fingers crossed there. But I'm just excited. I'm excited for the long weekend. We're going to take a couple days off, so I'll be off tomorrow. I'll be off on Tuesday. We've got great guest hosts in here for you. But I was telling Christine during the planning call earlier in the day I'm sort of tempted and maybe seriously considering either freezing or deleting my Twitter app off of my phone for the trip because these news cycles have been really tough. I think we can all agree over the last few weeks. And my blood pressure rises as I watch the news, as I watch the latest developments on Afghanistan or what have you. Of course, then you have a big storm That's affecting millions of people and killing people as well. And to try to just have quality time with Adam and his parents and my parents and just unplug for a bit, that temptation of just hitting that little blue icon and then having just the dumpster fire of Twitter anger and argument explode onto your phone and then suck you in, I don't want that. So I'm wondering, do I have the discipline to just ignore it and only open the app occasionally to like tweet a photo of a glass of wine or something? Or am I going to get down into the political rabbit hole, and could that impact the little vacation, the little trip? But what if I want to tweet about the football game or something? I don't know, Christine. What should I do? I think that you should, especially after these past couple of weeks, I think you need a break. Um, if you're going to post about wine or you know your family, uh, our anniversary, whatever, do that on Instagram. Let's delete Twitter from the phone, and I will make the solemn promise to you that if there's something breaking, I will be the first to call you, and then you can get your Twitter back on and tweet away. You're going to just show up hovering in a helicopter at the vineyard with a megaphone. Guy Benson, (laughs) check your Twitter. Redownload the app. It's cookie. And I'd say, you know, you could have just texted. You're like, no, I needed some wine. 
I'm not bringing you back wine. That's not a promise. But I think, believe it or not, that might be some decent advice. We'll see. But the decompression will be timely and needed. But this show isn't over. Much more still to come on the happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier today, we were joined by Congressman Anthony Gonzalez, a Republican of Ohio. He had a lot to say about Afghanistan and a couple other issues as well. Here's part of my conversation with the former Buckeye standout earlier in the program. Congressman Gonzalez, let's talk about more serious matters, specifically Afghanistan. Uh, You have been watching what has occurred over the last few weeks, this uh, disastrous, calamitous withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan. I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of, broadly speaking, U.S. policy over there, whether you think it was the right decision to get out ultimately of Afghanistan roughly around this time, and if that analysis is then separate from how you view the way that this withdrawal has been handled by the Biden administration. Yeah, so a lot of interesting questions in there to unpack. So I think the the way that I would answer it is ask myself the question, what was the goal of having a U.S. presence in that region? And to me, the goal is to prevent Afghanistan from becoming a launching point for terror and to prevent terrorist attacks on the homeland. So if by virtue of that being the goal, the strategy is, hey, let's shrink the force or let's move it elsewhere or so that we can still have a presence in the region to protect us, I think that's that's fair. If it's just get out because I made a political promise to get out, I think that's silly and short-sighted. Uh, now, then the second question is, okay, let's say you say, all right, I don't care, get everybody home, and you know we'll deal with Afghanistan from you know from from America. Even if that's your position, I think looking at what happened in Afghanistan with that withdrawal shows that the Biden administration both has no ability to understand who the Taliban is and how they operate, uh, and also has been on their back foot the entire time as one press conference after another, they basically contradict themselves or have to correct themselves within 20, 30 minutes. Um, So it's it's been a real disaster, and there's real-world consequences. We have people stuck in Afghanistan. I have people stuck in Afghanistan. He said 100 to 200 I will just tell you, I've talked to a handful of members, and my number's already at 100, and I haven't talked to that many people. So I think they're way short on that number, um, which will you know, be another example of, of them just being wrong on what's happening over there. Or lying, right? I mean, here's the thing. I, I don't like or to lying. just casually yeah. throw that around, but given everything that they've said and given the massive lie that the president told to Americans and to our Afghan allies that we would get them out, I mean, that is simply untrue it did not happen and i am not at this stage given all of their misinformation and deflection and spin i'm not willing to take any of their statistics really at face value at all and if they say well it's about a hundred and you say you're hearing it it's got to be significantly more than that based on just people that you specifically know about to me that would suggest that they are once again not being straight with the American people about a very important issue, which is how many Americans did we abandon in a country now run by a terrorist organization after the president said over and over again we were going to abandon no one? 
Yeah. Well, you make the exact right point. And, you know, I would say what we have now is a de facto hostage situation where we left the Taliban. I mean, think about this. He, he gives a press conference yesterday or the day before where he basically is celebrating the fact that we got 90 percent out. When did 90 percent of our people away from terrorists become the mark? Like to me, it was it was it was 100 percent. We have to get 100 percent of our people away from the Taliban so that they cannot be used uh, against us. They cannot be used as ransom uh, to to help foster their their terrorist state. And again, to your point, we know that's what they're going to do. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. I don't think this has been reported. So Secretary Blinken goes on TV and says, if an American wants to come home, they will be able to come home. And we believe we can work with the Taliban. Okay, so I call the task force, the Congressional Task Force, immediately after he gets gets done with that press conference. I say, okay, I have five people I need home. You just said that they can come home and that the Taliban is going to work with us. So what do I tell the people that are stuck in Afghanistan? And the response was, tell them to hide, tell them to shelter in place, and tell them we cannot help them because the military has gone and uh, the only thing that they're going to be able to do as of now is wait for the airport to reopen so they can buy a ticket. Does that sound like a partnership to you? That sounds like a hostage situation. That sounds like wow. do everything you can when... not to upset the Taliban or, you know, God help you. And that was the advice I got from the State Department five minutes after Secretary Blinken just got off, off stage telling people that anybody who wanted to leave could leave. And when was that? That was whenever he gave the press conference. I think it was two nights ago or the night before. The My full interview with Congressman Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio is available online. GuyBensonShow.com. You can also listen to the podcast for free every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcast. When we come back, the home stretch, some wild, wicked weather in the Northeast from Hurricane Ida. It lashed. New York, New Jersey, and elsewhere, including the home of producer Christine. And apparently, it sprung a few leaks. I'm sure she reacted calmly and rationally. We'll ask her about that on the home stretch when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Thursday on the Guy Benson Show. Here in the D.C. area, we got pounded with some pretty intense rain late yesterday, but it was nothing compared to what made its way into New Jersey and New York. We had some really intense rain the night before, and then a little bit of storminess during the day, and I guess that system moved up. These are the remnants of Ida. And some of the video I was seeing out of New Jersey and New York was just crazy. Like, Newark Airport had so much standing water just pouring down some stairs. I guess they canceled hundreds of flights out of Newark today and finally reopened. So that's just a total travel nightmare. Amtrak canceled all of their service in a certain corridor for the whole day. They just blasted it out. They just blasted that out and said, sorry for the inconvenience. I mean, the weather is just pretty wild. And the amount of precipitation, the amount of rain. I saw a lot of my friends who are up there in the New York area and sort of the surrounding locations saying they have never seen that much sustained rain that hard for that long. 
And we know that the death toll, there's flooding, there are all sorts of associated problems. The death toll from this storm is now into double digits and in the ballpark of two dozen. So obviously very, very serious. We had Janice Dean on earlier in the week talking about this storm as it was still in the deep south in the Gulf area. But quite a lot of devastation up in the New York, New Jersey area as well. I got a text message on the group thread last night from producer Christine, who had lost power, which is one thing, it happens, but she said that her roof was also leaking, which is no bueno. That is never good. And when the storm is as intense and wet and relentless as it was, that can really do some significant damage. And if you're a regular listener to the program, you know that producer Christine is not necessarily renowned for her calm under pressure, right? Her kind of preternatural level-headedness in the face of adversity. She's sort of the type of gal that if something goes slightly wrong, she douses herself in gasoline, lights a match, and jumps through a plate glass window from an upper floor of a building. That's sort of her general response to something going slightly wrong. That's kind of the the way that she handles things. So I'm actually surprised and relieved that she is still with us. I guess that the, uh, the power came back on in her neighborhood, and maybe they had enough buckets to deal with the leaks. Christine, how are you feeling today? I am feeling much, much better. Um, I think I really lost. I think I was pretty calm, cool, collected through the majority of the issues we were having going on in the house. But once the power went out, um, and I'm sure a lot of people that live around this area in the Northeast know, I realized quickly, wait a second, this rain is 10 times worse than what we saw during Sandy. During Sandy, we had breaks. You know, it wasn't, this was, you you know when you're in like a a major thunderstorm and it's torrential downpour, and you you think to yourself, all right, let me just stay in the store, let me just stay in the car, it's going to pass by in a couple minutes. That was the type of rain that probably lasted almost 12 hours and never let up. And unfortunately, we live uh, in northern New Jersey where the houses are, are much older, And this roof just couldn't handle that. So before the power went out, I started to notice in my master bedroom and in my guest room that little leaks, little leaks that turned into pretty bad leaks. And then as my husband and I were trying to fix this, my daughter came upstairs and said, I hear water downstairs. And we found another leak. We have an extension in the back of our house which we just put a brand new roof on that part spent $3,000 last October leaking all over the place. We had to get buckets. I had to um, ask a neighbor to leave buckets uh, just outside so I could run out and get them really quickly. I had to get in the attic and take like, you know, Christmas stuff at, you know, cause I have tubs for each holiday. I'd start pulling them out because the, the yeah, leg- when your when your holiday decorations are threatened, oh. things get serious in cookies household. Had this great idea that he was going to use this thing called flex tape. Uh, it's kind of like a like stronger than masking tape. Um, what's kind of like duct tape? tape people use? Duct tape, yeah. But it's called flex tape. 
So he had me holding a flashlight in the attic while he's trying to feel in the dark for where the, the, the water's coming in. And then he's trying to cut the flex tape with little, little light and put it on the wood, which it did nothing. That, did, that didn't help at all. And then once the power went out, um, the panic in Cookie started. And don't forget, I have an eight-year-old little girl who is freaking out herself. So I probably, I probably could have been better, and I'll work on that. Uh, but suffice to say, because I had this irrational fear, uh, maybe it was rational, I don't know, that the entire roof was going to cave on us, I had Megan uh, sleep with me because I was terrified. Now, how would Megan sleeping with you help anything if the roof collapsed? I'm not really sure. At least I had her with me. I don't know. My husband was asking the same thing because my husband, don't forget, he was on duty all night. You know, he woke me up a little bit so I could help him, but he had to really stay up and just keep monitoring wherever the rain was coming in because, you know, we have hardwood floors. And if, you know, we weren't watching out, we could have ruined the floors in our house. And then what time, what time did the power go down? Um, I think the when did I text you guys? The power went down like right then. Whenever I texted you last night, because then I that's when I really started to panic, and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to work tomorrow. You know, all that stuff. How long did it stay out? Uh, by like, I would say by three, maybe. Like I could hear, I I heard, you know, you know when the power comes on and you're sleeping and you hear things turn on again. Yeah. Like I could hear the clickings of things turn off. Right, so it was a few hours that it went out, which is not that bad, all things considered. No, but you start to think, you know, with Sandy, we were out without power for two weeks. Right. And just the flashbacks of that came into my mind. And, um, yeah, I did a number. And I, I listen, we were the lucky ones. We, we had neighbors that had inches upon inches of water in their basement. Um, we knew somebody uh, we heard today that was stuck on the highway, had to have one of those boats come, you know, the little float boats come out and oh, rescue wow. them. It, it was really, really bad in my area. So um, You said I'm that Megan could hear, you said that Megan could hear the water in the basement. Did you guys not have water in the basement? So, uh, no, Megan heard water in our first level. Uh, yeah, we did Got have it. water come in the basement, too, but nothing terrible. Um, like, all, we have a drop ceiling. That whole thing, like, just came crashing through, and it was all soaking wet. So Bobby just said that's an easy fix. Like, he can go to Lowe's at one point and fix that. But, I mean, we have people that around here that their whole entire basement is just destroyed. It was so really bad. was Megan, your daughter, freaked out because you were freaked out? Well, yeah, and then I probably didn't help because I was looking at the news of the tornadoes, and that's when she really started to freak out. And then I was looking at the video of the tornadoes, and she's like, Mommy, is that coming here? And I said, no, 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 no. But then Bobby's like, you know what, Christine, why don't we just not show her videos of tornadoes? Because then Megan and I were thinking about sleeping in the basement, but then when the basement started getting wet and also our dog was down there, we figured, ugh, let's just uh, get into the guest Well, couldn't room. you just so. sleep with the dog? Down in the basement, just sort of so, gather everyone down there. If you were, I don't know, was it really a, a threat, a substantial threat of tornadoes? No, not by us, but in my mind it was. But no, no, we know. Right. I mean, you, you hear, getting, like, you know, this is this is the woman who thought that she had COVID every day for like six months. Right? She's just convinced yeah, I can't buy that. anything bad in the world is going to come directly to her doorstep. And so, but if you were worried about that, 
why not get yeah. Megan and the dog and sleep downstairs? Well, it's funny you ask that. Uh, my dog refused to go outside for a good 10 hours. And we all know what happens when dogs don't go outside. She oh, decided boy. to, you know, sneak down into the basement and make that her potty room. Oh, boy. So, um, yeah. <laughs> the systems morning, were really breaking down. It was bad. My poor husband this morning was getting the carpet cleaner out once the power came back. It was, it was just bad. I called Wyatt this morning and I said, not enough caffeine for today. But actually, I was glad. I thought I wasn't going to be able to do work today, but I'm glad I did because that, you know, kept my mind focused and let my husband have to deal with the roofer because we need a whole new roof now. Well, I'm surprised you didn't self-medicate with just two open bottles, double fisting, mama's juice, <laughs> just stumbling through the dark house, swigging in panic. No, no mama's juice was had. No, I don't. No. See, mama's juice to me is fun. It's not like I don't use it to, uh, I don't use it as a coping mechanism, which is shocking, I know. To me, that's just a fun thing, which Bobby always cracks up because he, he would think, as just like you, like that's the time where I would go for the wine. No, I just take a random Monday when nothing's going on <laughs> and decide to <laughs> just have some wine. <laughs> now, Quiet Wyatt, you're also in New Jersey. What was the extent of your weather emergency? Guy, it wasn't that bad here. I, I don't want to make light of the situation because I know people have lost their lives and their homes are destroyed. But it, here, the only thing that caused a problem was my Wall Street Journal paper edition didn't come in the mail this morning. <gasps> my God. No paper edition of the – did you have to resort to the online version, Wyatt? Yes, I had to do online wow. today. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers for Wyatt and his Wall Street Journal subscription. Hopefully, the madness will end and order will be restored tomorrow with the Friday edition of the Wall Street Journal. And we will have the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show, although I will not be here. Guest hosts tomorrow and Tuesday. We've got a great best of for Labor Day as well, as we mentioned earlier. A little bit of a anniversary trip for the family on my end, but I'll be back here next week and we've got you covered in the meantime. Thank you so much for listening. Have a fabulous long weekend. I'll talk to you next week. Guest host and best of. In the meantime, happy Labor Day, everyone. It's the Guy Benson Show. everybody, it's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.